0: I want to begin by just acknowledging what a powerful place we are in the practice, in our time together, that at this point there is, you know, a great momentum that builds. And at the same time, we have strong winds of change happening, that um, we know on some level, with some level of certainty, that we won't be sitting here tomorrow night together in this way. And so what happens, you know, with that momentum and with the sense of change about to happen, change happening? We've already, you know, things have already changed this afternoon, and with that momentum, it's. A great time to be exploring how we relate to change. Know that for some of us we may be sitting here really trying to hang on to some peace or calm that we had. Or for some of us there may be fear, you know, that we have um, felt like we really benefited from being here and being somewhat afraid, unsure of what the future might bring. And sometimes we find that it's hard to be with loss. It could be that during our time here, we've been touched deeply and the sense of being separated from a beloved. It was often something I experienced at the end of retreats. You know, just having valued the time so much. And then loss in its finishing, completing. And so so one reaction that we can have around loss when we don't know how to really be and honor the process of loss, we jump ahead. We go to the next thing. You know, in a sense our bags are already packed. You know that we're already in the future. What we're going to do tomorrow? What you know? What's next? Where will where we'll go? What we'll do? You know, and you know, just not. And it can sometimes be out of that sense of it's too much to be here anymore. It's too much to feel this level of change. You know, and I've heard one teacher once talk about endings of retreat, similar to how we might die. You know, and being with the death process in a certain way. It's very powerful to keep turning up right now. You know, that to watch if you feel like, you know, okay, we've done it, we're finished. But to really keep staying with, and keep staying with over the coming days, over the coming lifetime, you know, that, that, that it doesn't stop here. And what we just need to keep doing is to remember to look, to see, to be with to honor, to respect. And, of course, doing this with kindness and care. I'd like to share a teaching from a Buddhist nun named Rangetsu. And she was a nun who was said to live with such a strong sense of impermanence that she kept all of her belongings in a little box that she carried around with her. And this this poem really struck something when I first heard it. It's called Unseen Young Nuns on Their Begging Rounds. First steps on the long path to truth. Please do not dream your lives away. Walk on to the end. It hits within me something about this aspiration that we uh, may have gotten in touch with over the course of our time here, what Yanai spoke about so beautifully last night, you know, just this sense of possibility that resonates within our own hearts. And you know, during the time of being here, the care, the nurturance we've given to this, and we may have different words for expressing it, You know, different way of getting a sense of it. But it's something that is dear to our hearts. And, you know, it's like we've taken these steps on the long path to truth. And the second part that really resonated with me was, Please do not dream your lives away. Walk on to the end. I know in my own life, I have had a fear that I will dream my life away. And you know, at times I've done a pretty good job of it. (laughs) I mean, you know, part of the waking up, seeing how much fantasy we get caught in, lost in. And, you know... Even, you know, one of the great ways I've seen of dreaming my life away is being on retreat and dreaming of my next retreat.
1: <laughs> Whoa!
0: <laughs> and I, you know, I know that in my heart I do not want to lay on my deathbed with regret for what my life could have been. You no, know, I want to know that I did the best I could. You know, it doesn't mean I'm going to move mountains. I'm gonna doesn't mean I'm going to be fully awake. But I want to know that I turned up as best I could. And this is the passion of my life. This is what fuels me. And this is what helps me to take the step from being on retreat, doing this work on retreat, and taking it into my life because it doesn't stop. This just helps to bring fuel to what we're doing. It helps us to remember. It helps us to learn a little bit about skillful means that we can apply in our lives. But the practice on one level remains the same. To honor this truth and to help give the conditions for our hearts to blossom, for us to fully inhabit our lives, to find that posture that can turn up, that can be present, that can meet all of what life brings to us through all of the ups and the downs, through the full catastrophe of life. I love that term. You know, because that's what we get, whether we like it or not. (laughs) This is what comes. So tonight, I'm going to be speaking in broad strokes about how we do this. You know, it's not the nitty-gritty, but just some things that have been helpful in my own life. Um, Just... You know one being more the attitude to which I face my life, you know, because I did feel you know from a young age a passion to awaken, you know a passion for me, the the beginning language was that of truth. you know just as a young child, that was something that struck a chord in me. And so you know that's where each of us will have our own words but and, and I found that through being on retreat this was deeply nurtured that you know and there was a time in my life where it felt really right to spend a lot of time in retreat to because it was just you know really wow looking at this mind body in a different way and to give that time to give it time in the place of simplicity where life is not so complex and the conditions of my life were such that I could do that for periods of time. You know, that, you know, it, and this will be different for each of us, how much time we actually spend in retreat. You know, some of us may be at a place in life where we can hear that call in that way and respond and, and you know, continue to, to find time in our lives to do more extended practice. And this is wonderful when it happens, when this is our calling and we can respond. But some of us may have very different lives where the karmic connections that we have and the honoring of those relationships makes us turn up in a daily way for people that are near and dear to us. Or that the work that we're doing in the world has a way of deeply feeding us And the practice helps us to learn to turn up more fully, to be more engaged, to be able to stay present when we face the challenges, the difficulties. When we, in our lives, something that happens is often we feel powerless, helpless. You know, we look out at what's happening in the world and it seems like a mass of suffering. And it's like, wow, you know, what can I possibly do here? But through the practice we see that change begins within ourselves. That this is what we can do. This is what we can bring to the world. This is what we can bring to the very way that we live our lives. And so, you know, how this practice moves us into the world will be different according to the conditions of our lives. But if we're you know have some intelligence about doing this it will help us to live life more fully in whatever we are doing for each of us to nurture what helps keep our hearts alive and engaged what helps us to nurture that aspiration and it doesn't work to do it from the place of an ideal of what the good, noble, seeker, wanderer, what that looks like. It really helps to do it very viscerally, what nurtures us. What brings more peace into our lives? What interests us? What keeps that, that level of deep dharma inquiry alive and engaged? This is what we look to. This is what we nurture. And you know, the, our very life becomes the path of unfolding dharma. And, you know, I found it's really helpful not to have an idea about it because actually my ideas were limited. You know, I could imagine a little bit, but where my life has taken me, I would have never guessed it would happen in the way it has. And it really comes through continuing to practice, continuing to support, to look, to inquire, To be with all of the complexities of our life. And with that, in the finding, the paying attention to what nurtures us. You know, and that can be simple things like having a daily practice, can be meeting together with like minded people. Can be, you know, I, I lived in a place where there wasn't many sitting groups. So, you know, it was inviting people into my home, listening to tapes, you know, just finding ways that I could continue to support myself in practice. Very practical ways. You know, this isn't some high fluting ideal, this is down to, down to earth. What can I do here and now to keep this heart pulsating? connecting, alive? What can I keep this willingness of heart? I mean, this is something that's critical, this willingness. How can I nurture this? So looking in very practical ways. And with this, to also see what it is in our lives that we're doing that don't help us that don't serve us. And, you know, this again is really simple things. For me at one point, you know, I was doing a lot of practice and then I'd come back into my daily life and I'd just do everything I'd done before and that could include, you know, going to parties, that would include, you know, at times being engaged in a lot of gossip. That was what I was really started to hit me at one point there was just this level of gossip and i'd leave and i would just feel i would be cringing inside and you know just feeling the pain of that and then you know it didn't come i didn't feel like i turned into this righteous those people are gossiping i won't you know it didn't have that feeling at all it was just like wow i don't need to do that you know i don't need to do that and also that i just found that i would go to some of these events and it didn't bring me alive. It didn't help to, you know, it was like the patterns that it fed into were patter- my patterns. This was not about the people around me, it was about my own internal process. Patterns of complacency. Patterns of, you know, just going for that immediate hit, that immediate high. But it left me feeling really unfulfilled. And then it was like, wow, I don't need to do this. You know, what can I do that lights me up? What can I do that keeps me alive? And so a willingness to let go of that which does not serve us. And it's not righteousness. It's just practical again. No, it's, it's not leading to the end of suffering. We don't need to do it. And then, you know, one of the beautiful things that happened in my life was that the more that I got into practice, the more it invigorated me. That became something that other people kind of looked at and went, hmm, what are you doing these days? You know, and then, you know, it kind of tweaked curiosity in people. And then it was like, oh, well, you know, I'm sitting and I really enjoy it. And Well, actually, you know, there's a sitting group at my house and if you want to come, please come. Or, you know, sometimes going off to a retreat and then you find there's some friend that wants to go with you. You know, it was really beautiful to, to share it in that way. You know, and it, and in a sense, you know, to... In these times where somebody just joins you, it's like, sh- for me, it was sharing that which was most important in my life. And that, not that we ever want to push that on anybody, because we all have our own unfolding, our own ways of discovering truth. But, you know, it's like just being open to the possibility of a shared journey. And we don't know who we're going to share it with. Another aspect was not limiting how I thought the teachings would come to me. And to recognize that in any moment there can be a teaching, a lesson to be learned. And, you know, finding quite amazing beings that will teach us. Mice have been very predominant <laughs> in my life and as teachers, and profound teachings from these little beings in really unexpected ways. I wonder, will I indulge in a story here? <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> have I told any of my story in this retreat? No. Okay. <laughs> so, at one point in my life, I was living in a community. I, at this time, lived in a tent. You know, it was summertime. The community didn't have enough accommodation, indoor accommodation for everybody. So, I lived in this tent. It was an amazing time in my life in this community and I fell in love. It was wonderful. I felt really in love. You know that that you know new love, that whoa. <laughs> it was great. And then one day the person expressed they were not in love with me. I was devastated. You know, you know how when you're young and you could just get crushed when this happens. I felt really crushed. And so there, I was working really hard at this time too. In this community, that was your practice. You worked hard. And so, you know, I had these days where I worked really hard. And this day, you know, I, this devastating news, I had cried. I was exhausted. You just emotional turmoil. And I worked all day. And I came home and I went to go to bed at night in my tent. And I laid down in my sleeping bag. I think it was a sleeping bag. Actually, I'm not sure about that. But I laid in my bed and you know, just exhausted and so wanting to go to sleep. And then before I fell asleep, in came my teacher. <laughs> in came this little mouse. And beside my bed I had a little pile of of uh, dried fruit and nuts. And the mouse found it right away. (laughs) He was happy, or she, I don't know. They were happy. And they started nibbling right beside my ear. (laughs) Oh boy, this was hard. This was really hard. Because actually I didn't at that point have a great affinity and love of mice. It's become much more tender over the years, <laughs> but at that point it was not so tender. And there was this crunching right beside my ear. It was, <laughs> it was a long night, a really long night. And then the next day I get up and I go back to work and, you know, it's a hard day at work and I'm still in this emotional turmoil. And then I come home at night, and I think, I have to sleep tonight. I need a good night's sleep. And so I cleaned up every speck of that little pile of fruit and nuts. And then I get in bed, and I have this sigh, like, I'm going to sleep tonight. I will not be disturbed. And so the little mouse comes in my tent, and... (laughs) goes to the spot, and there's nothing there. And I think, that's okay. And then I think, okay, I'm going to get up, I'm going to shoo them out, and then I'm really going to sleep. So I shooed the mouse out, and I did up the tent zippers really tight. And I thought, okay, this is it. (laughs) I'm going to sleep. And I laid down in my bed, and what happened? This mouse went crazy. <laughs> this mouse started circling around the tent. I could hear it, and it would you know, go up against the side of the tent and back down. And I'm laying there, and, you know, oh, come on, it's seen, there's nothing there, there's nothing there. And then, you know, this goes on. It's 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. And then what did it start doing? It started running up the sides of the tent. (laughs) And it was too much. You know, I was like, I was screaming inside. This mouse knows there's nothing there. Why? (laughs) Why? And then I had my moment of revelation. I went, oh, my God. I am just like the mouse. There was something there. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. And it's gone. (laughs) There's nothing there. And really, when I realized that, I let go of that relationship. It was something that had been, it had been beautiful, conditions had changed, it was gone. And I was like, I just went, oh, okay. At that point I fell into a deep sleep (laughs) and I never heard from the mouse again. (laughs) But I'm still grateful to that mouse to this day. (laughs) And so life has so many lessons to teach us. Our teachers come in different forms. Don't have an idea about how it should be, what we're going to learn from, now let it be an open, you know, it's about how we meet life. This is our practice. How do we meet life? This is from a um, a Thai lay woman who became a very renowned teacher, she says, the first requirement when you come to practice is that you need to be the sort of person who loves the truth and you need to possess endurance to do what's true. Only then will your practice get anywhere. Otherwise, it all turns into failure and you go back to being a slave to your defilements and cravings, just as before you know it's that love of truth that's what we keep alive and and that you know there needs to be a resolve a willingness a courageousness to wake up out of complacency and you know so often The way the world turns is to seduce us into that complacency. And that's where it feels so much like we're going against the grain. You know, we're, we're trying to break that trance. We're trying to really wake up out of the enchantment that we get seduced into, into the reality and the freedom of here and now. And so where I began this train of thought was, let's not dream our lives away. You know, as this Buddhist nun Rangetsu said, please do not dream your lives away. Walk on to the end. And what has amazed me and continues to amaze me is the joy that happens. You know, the joy from simple moments of being with our experience. The joy that just comes. You know, another experience I had was this was a time when, you know, I had a strong commitment to sit twice a day. And you know, I'd sit in the first thing in the morning and in the evening, and I was really committed to that. Um, and this was, again, when I was doing this kind of investigation around trying to honor and nurture this commitment and doing things that were often unskillful. So, you know, again, I, I got up in the morning, I sat, I, had a, I went to work, had a busy day. It was a Friday. At the end of the day, I went straight to a party. I had some intoxicants, mind, you know, a little cloudy, a little foggy, tired. Um, I got home, and I got into bed. And I was just about to fall asleep. (laughs) Sleep, a lot happens at this time. (laughs) Just about to fall asleep. And then I heard the voice, You didn't sit yet. And then, you know, at that point, there was an unwaveringness. And so it was like when I would hear that voice, I would just do it. You know, I didn't listen to the the nee in the mind. <laughs> I would just do it. So that's what I did. So I got up and I sat on my little Zabutan and Zafu and I sat there and I and you know, I just did it anyways. And there, there's a really way that we can rationalize that and say, "Well, that's stupid. Why don't you go to bed, get a good night's sleep, and begin again?" But you know, during that time, because of all, you know the commitment I had to practice, I was having many wonderful experiences. I don't remember them, but I remember that honoring of that commitment. I remember that resolve in the heart. I re- I just remember what it took to sit there and that. I'm going to do it anyways. And I still get inspired when I remember it. (laughs) So it does, it takes a resolve of the heart. And that resolve is that, that steady, gentle endurance to keep going keep going. I'm having a dusty Springfield song come into my mind, and I don't know if I've got the words totally right, and I certainly won't sing it, I won't torture you in that way, but it's something to the effect of, um, and when you fall down, you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off, and you start all over again. And you know, this is what we do in our lives. You know, and every time, you know, just every time you pick yourself up where you feel like you've fallen, just begin again. You know, that same way we treat the practice here. When we get lost, we simply begin again. And just doing that with all the love in your heart. And that's the joy. Wow. You know, I'm honoring this stupid moment. Just as it is. I mean, you know, like sometimes it's so crummy what's happening. Sometimes it's challenging. But what? We turned up for it. You know, we didn't give ourselves away in this moment. There's such a joy in that. And then, you know, just in any moment where we feel the letting go of some, something that possessed us, And just feeling even you know that brief moment where we've put something down. Letting that joy fill your heart. Being inspired. Finding what inspires you. I remember. You know, just having a sense that it was not good enough to have a practice that stayed on the cushion. That yes, there's some peace, some calm, some happiness that comes. But that's so limited. And that it becomes in the very living of life. You know the grist the grist for the mill do you remember ramdas's book and of that right there look wake up stay true to your heart in that moment and certainly don't carry the voice of should the brutality the ideals i mean live in your life and respond to your life you no know, there's a, such a beauty in learning to live on the level of the relative you know live honoring you know the ver- the, the the stuff of life all of that stuff and it's like in a sense we live as if it all matters and yet when we live with the wisdom of the absolute we know there's nothing to hang on to and you know what what that helps us to do is to live full or to love fully knowing that there's nothing to hang on to here but that you know that our hearts can fully meet this and care and be open but not having to hang on to it. And there's a freedom in that. The Brahma-Viharas, you know, the loving kindness, the compassion, the appreciative joy, and we didn't actually get to the equanimity practice, but it too is there. These are all great supports in our life. You know, an orientation in the mind to living in a way of inclusiveness, of care, of respect, uh, where we, we can really honor this relative world and to open our hearts to it. And there's just little ways of living with these Brahma-viharas in our life. You know, th- th- again, don't let these be high-fluting states that one day will come to know. Know loving-kindness in the moment when we can just be with someone who's in pain and really listen. You know, any time that we can fully be present for another in our lives, it, you know, it's a, it's a way of caring, kindness in a moment where we can share joy with a friend who's just come into some way, some moment of good fortune. That we can just share that delight and appreciation. A moment where we stand with someone in suffering. Letting it be very simple in our lives how we touch these moments. And these qualities really support our, what could be a really fruitful investigation of the five precepts, you know, these precepts that we undertook on uh, New Year's Eve that can be a guidance in our life, where we just have an orientation to life of how we can live with you know, a bigger view than this self, but really living with a sense of this interconnectedness. And, you know, just simple guidelines of not taking the life of another. But what is that in the grist of life when our house is being eaten by termites? You know, these are real questions that we face as human beings. And so, really, those are the moments where we look to our intention, we look, how do we really live a life of Dharma inquiry here? What do we do? You know, for me, it hasn't been so helpful to hold the precepts in a really black and white way, but to bring them into that place of Dharma inquiry as a guideline? And what does this mean? How do I let, you know, the the sense of care and respect be in my heart and to live in the best way that I can? How do I do that? You know, I spoke about my struggles with the bugs um, in Burma. You know, that that was like one of those challenges. How do I do this? And, you know, practically speaking, you know, I looked, I wore insect repellent, you know, you know, had a mosquito net around me, just the little things that we can do. We're, we're, we, it means that in some way we're taking care to respect. So, you know, just with all of the precepts, and, you know, at this time I'm not going to go into them in detail. But to let them become a place of investigation. You know, watch, you know, around speech. You know, maybe this was talked about today, I'm not sure how much was said. <laughs> but, you know, just around really learning to speak, that which feels both true and useful. You know, and in our culture, you know we have this thing about truth, you know in you know my truth my well, you know truth isn't personal, <laughs> it doesn't belong to me, but you know what's 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 true and useful? A friend once said to me something that was really helpful she said, "If you speak the truth and it's not useful, then it's not the truth you know that that just um." There, that sometimes with truth we get identified with a view, a concept, a belief. Truth can become the banner of our views and opinions and beliefs. And that isn't really the truth. I mean, it's, you know, it's parading as the truth. And so, you know, it's, it's in our speech to really take in the totality of any situation. And of course, we with these precepts, it's not trying to get it perfect, trying to get it right, but becoming aware of our intention, becoming aware of what motivates us. And that certainly has been very helpful for me around speech and, you know, should I be talking about somebody not in their presence? To really look and see, am I saying it about this person or am I... It may be that sometimes sharing something in our own process is helpful. But, if, you know, there can be a slippery slope around truth. Around, you know, um, a question came up in a recent retreat about, is it ever okay to tell white lies? And there, there's one level where we have to be really careful. Because, you know, once we start moving into deception, we start having to cover our tracks. And what does that create confusion you know the where you know if you if you say something that's not quite true and somebody's got their radar screen up and they might sense that it 's not quite true, but then what they might do is not believe their own perception, you know, and so we can just start making this really confused environment, but then you know if i if I looked at it on the level of if telling some lie was going to save somebody's life? I'm not so sure I would hold to, you know, I don't know. But these are questions we face in our lives. And so you know, using it as exploration, using it as inquiry, A part of this is all learning to be honest with ourselves. And this is what we develop through the practice. You know, as we begin to know anger as anger, fear as fear, and that willingness to allow it to be what it is. You know, that we need to take our self-image off a peg of what we either might like to be or what we hold ourselves down to be. Whatever way we hold that, and to really just be honest what's happening in our experience. And that, you know, that can, I've seen before where I'm trying to deny some mind state. And the energy it takes to deny. And then when I suddenly just get honest with myself. It's such a relief. Hmm. So the journey for each of us will be unique. You know, it will all our lives will be pulled and called in many different ways. And it's a sense of honoring our own process, but really giving support, nurturing, and listening to what brings that support. And certainly it's helpful to have teachers in our lives. For me, my teachers have helped to reflect back to me things I might not see. Because the mind can be a slippery slope, aspects of the mind. That, you know, that self-deception can be strong. And so sometimes you know putting ourselves in the place of being with elders being with people who have shared this journey and may have learned, you know, even one aspect. It's not like every teacher has the fullness, but can just help us in different ways. Certainly, coming back on retreat at time is really helpful. At times it's helpful. But just keeping, nurturing this inner aspiration and looking how to do this practically in our lives. I'd like to just uh, close with a a, a humble offering (laughs) of something I wrote at the end of one retreat that I did. It's called Resolve of the Heart. Seeing the face of fear, I quiver and I quake. I become so small, two steps backwards, and still I walk on. The torment of the judging mind, you or me, it's the thought that divides. There is so much disdain, and still I walk on. Laziness prevails, It clouds my vision. Sometimes I think that my bed is (laughs) Nibbana. And still I walk on. The unending sleepiness that defies impermanence. The bashing from its waves. Foggy, heavy, oppressive. And still I walk on. Guilt, self-hatred. They are friends that gang up that lacerate and pierce, and I'm left in the muck. And still, I walk on. Walk on, walk on. It's that whisper in my ear. It's that longing in my heart. It's that shiver of unspeakable peace. And so, I walk on. So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings walk on until they realize the peace that is unshakable.